0: Good morning, I'm Steve Smith, and I'll be reading our scripture from Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it thinking he was in their company they traveled on for a day then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends when they did not find him they went back to jerusalem to look for him after 3 days they found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers when his parents saw him Treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.
1: Some of you have heard me tell this before, but when I was a college student, uh, I was married before Gloria and I went to college, and. My daughter was born my sophomore year of college. And during that time, I was a full-time student through those years, but I also worked 40 plus hours a week. Uh, I tell you that so that you'll be a little more understanding as I tell this next story, uh, cause I had very little sleep during that time. Uh, as I read this story about Jesus at 12 years old, you know, like most of you, my mind runs to the times that I left one of my kids behind. Uh, Sadly, I had several stories. I'm only going to tell you one of them. Uh, The one I'm going to tell you is when my daughter was, she wasn't even two years old, and uh, I was in school, and one day took her to run to the grocery store, pick up a few things, and as we were getting ready to leave at checkout, for some reason that I don't remember, I kind of pushed the cart up a little bit into the side as I was paying, and then I picked up all my groceries, and I turned, and I went out the door and was heading across the parking lot uh, and I honestly walked a little ways through the parking lot to my car, and it was not in t- and the whole time I was walking, I kept thinking, "I have forgotten something." <laughs> what in the world did I forget And it was not until I got close to the car and I saw that car seat, and when I saw that car seat, the rush of horror uh, you know floods through me, dropped the groceries right there in the parking lot, went running back into the grocery store, turned the corner, and there's my little daughter just swinging her feet, having a good old time in the cart, happy as could be. I really couldn't tell you the reaction of everybody else, because at that moment, the emotion changed from fear and all of that into shame, and so I was making eye contact with no one. I went straight to my daughter, picked her up, headed back out, and got my groceries, and went to my car. I didn't tell my wife that story for several years. (laughs) She did not know about that incident. Uh, And another mistake I made was several years later, I thought we were far enough from that event that I could tell Lori, and she would think it was kind of funny. Uh, I was absolutely wrong about that. There was was no laughter uh, in her response. Matter of fact, when I told her just a couple of days ago that I was going to tell that story today, I could still see the disgust in her face. Um, Leaving your kid behind is just something that any parent, you know, just shudders at the thought of. Uh, the, The fact that not only my kid was in danger, but that I could have been the cause of it. It's just a horrible thought. And so when I read this story, boy, I can empathize for Mary and Joseph. Now, in my defense, I only went a couple minutes. They went a full day. Of course, he was 12 years old, but they went a full day before they realized he was gone. They were leaving Jerusalem where they'd been for the Feast of the Passover, and they're traveling back to Nazareth, which is a three-day trip. And they're traveling, as I'm sure was common, in a large group of people, relatives, probably neighbors and friends, all heading back to Nazareth together. And so I'm sure they're just assuming their 12-year-old son is playing with His cousins or friends, neighbors, uh, hanging out somewhere in that large group of people. Probably not until that night when they're settling down for the night that suddenly they can't find him. They realize that Jesus is not there. And imagine again the feeling that they had, the, the shock, the horror, the confusion. Where is he? If they're like us, you know, Mary and Joseph were probably blaming each other a little bit for being the ones who should have had an eye on him. But they can't find him can't find him anywhere. And so they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem, a full day's uh, travel back. And Luke tells us that it was three days from then before they actually found Jesus, so probably three days from that starting to look for him, realizing he was missing, until they found him, maybe even three days from the time they arrived back in Jerusalem, but a long period of time, a long period of time for a 12-year-old to be alone in the city. Uh, and, And there were reasons to fear. You know, people tell us, estimate that there may have been as many as 60 million slaves in the ancient world at that time. A 12-year-old boy on his own could have been an easy target uh, for people wanting to take him and pull him into slavery. So again, you can just imagine the the fear, the anxiety, the desperation that they felt searching that city uh, for their son. And then finally, we're told that they go to the temple, and there he is, sitting in the courtyard Listening to the teachers of the law, interacting with them, asking questions, giving some answers. And it probably wasn't strange that a boy his age was doing that. That would have been a time of preparation. Uh, it was a year before he'd be at the age where he'd be accepted as a full adult in the synagogue. So it was, that was probably common for kids his age to be sitting listening to the teachers at that time. But they say what was not normal. What was astonishing was the way he interacted with the teachers of the law, his understanding of the scriptures. I'm sure the kind of questions he did ask revealed his understanding and then the answers he gave. People were amazed. But imagine if you're Mary and Joseph and you walk up on that scene after at least three days of searching for this boy, and he's sitting there and he's having a good time. He's interacting with the teachers. It's great. He's enjoying himself. And everybody is amazed with him, thinking he's just remarkable. In that moment, I'm thinking, not so happy with you. And I don't even like seeing you have a good time. You should be desperately searching for us right now, right? And so Mary says to him, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus' response, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, how would you respond if you were Mary when your son said that? It can come across like maybe that was a kind of a smart alley cancer, but because of what we know from Scripture about Jesus, we know it wasn't disrespectful and wasn't meant to be that. I wonder if really it was kind of like Jesus saying to his mom, Mom, you should have known this is where I would be. Shouldn't you? Don't you know? And really even though it says that they still even after he said that didn't fully understand were confused by that response there are there are ways in which Mary should have known there are reasons that, that she should have maybe not completely but she had information that she had been given that, that that truly made her understand that Jesus is on a different mission than anybody else this is a this is a different boy than anybody else before he was even born, the angel Gabriel came to her. So this is the son of the Most High, just the one whose kingdom will never know an end. Um, again, before he's even born, uh, Elizabeth, her cousin, tells her that, you know, that through God that she is, it's been revealed to her that this is the Savior, the Messiah that you're going to give birth to. We know the story. She gave birth to him as a virgin, which says there's something different going on. We know that when the night he was born that the shepherds came and shared what the angels had told them and testified to her about his identity and who he was. We know that when he was only eight days old, she took him to the temple, as was the tradition, and Simeon and Anna both prophesied to them about who God had told them that this child was, the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the Savior. And they raised this little boy who never sinned. For 12 years, they had been with a little boy who never, ever sinned. So I fully get that they didn't understand. But it's, it's not a strange thing that Jesus says to his mom, Mom, you should have known this is where I would be. Because, Mom, all along, I was at home. I was right where I belong. This is my home, to be with my father. But I also understand why they didn't immediately understand. Because they raised that little boy for 12 years. They had taught him to walk and to talk. They had fed him and taken care of him and bandaged his wounds. Um, They had comforted him when he was hurt by another. They had assigned him chores they had protected him and cared for him and guided him and taught him God's word and done all the things that good parents would do for 12 years. They did experience these things that testify to the fact that he is more beyond, that, that he is, there is something different about him. But they also every day experienced a little boy, their son, the one they loved. And so it's not strange that they looked at Jesus the way parents look at their kids. And his humanity screamed at them. And maybe it was a little harder to own his divinity. Uh, We often speculate when we think about what it must have been like to raise a perfect child or to be a sibling of a perfect child. You'll hear those discussions and people talk about, you know, how it'd be to, you know, for instance, to grow up with a brother who never stole anything never lied never talked back you know never fought back never never did anything that was not thoughtful of another and was not right Oh, that would be hard but we also forget that being sinless being perfect meant that he loved perfectly he was always generous he was always forgiving he was always kind he always considered the needs of the other he was always humble That is part of what it means to be a perfect, sinless human being. That was Jesus, too. They experienced fully his humanity. But I think Jesus is saying to them, but you know, you know there's more to the story, Mom. You know this isn't all of it. And Luke tells us that Jesus grew in stature. He had to physically grow. He was a human boy. He had to do all the things that human boys do. He just did them all without sin. But I think we need to remember that when Luke's writing his gospel, he's not just writing a biography. He's not just giving you a list of here's what happened. Uh, in fact, I think it's interesting to think about that you know, Luke tells us that he interviewed others to, to get this information. I wonder if this story came from Mary. I wonder if that's who he talked to to get these details. But we have to remember, he's really preaching a sermon. He's trying to get across a point or multiple points. He's arranging these stories in such a way to make a point all true stories but he chose which stories to tell and and to present because he's trying to get a point across to us and i think one of the points that he's trying to get across to us one of the main points in these early chapters of the gospel of luke are that jesus is the one who is truly and fully and uniquely qualified to represent mankind before God. He is the only one. He's one of us. Jesus is fully human. He grows physically. He learns. He has parents that worry about him. It's why the author of Hebrews can say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. He gets us. He understands us, he can be our representative because he is one of us. But also, he's more. Jesus is not like us in some ways. He is beyond us because he is fully God. He has perfect relationship with his heavenly Father, perfect relationship with man, perfect relationship with God. Um, and, and Jesus knew even from a very young age, here at 12 years old, he knew he was on his Father's mission. He knew what his life was about already, and he was preparing for it and beginning to pursue it. Because Jesus came into this world, somewhere along the way he came to understand as his mind matured that he came in this world to, to reconcile a broken world and a broken people to his Father, to God. That was his mission. It was his mission to usher in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice. That was the job he was here to do. So he was like us, fully man, but also beyond us, fully God. There is no one before him, after him, uh, who is qualified the way he is to be our representative between us and the Father, to restore a right relationship between man and God. Only Jesus meets those qualifications. And you see it in Luke's, in these early chapters of the Gospel, he's laying out those qualifications. He's kind of writing out a good resume here. Uh, He says he was an obedient son. He tells that story, obedient to his earthly parents in right relationship with man, but obedient to his heavenly father in right relationship with God. He's validated as the long-awaited Savior by John the Baptist. John, the one that the prophets had said would come to prepare the way for the messiah for the savior john validates this is the one in his baptism he receives divine endorsement the holy spirit descends upon him like a dove and god the father says to him you are my son whom i love with you i'm well pleased luke lays out his genealogy and he runs it through king david and through abraham but unlike matthew he even takes it all the way back to adam I think Luke is saying he is is uniquely qualified to represent all mankind, Israel, but all mankind. And then we're told that the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. And unlike Israel before him and unlike Adam, he remains faithful and obedient to God his Father. This is the one, the one, the only one qualified to be our Savior, qualified to step in for us before the Father and represent us and pay the price of our sins. And I think Luke is beginning his gospel by laying that out. He is the one. It's his main point. And I think he's asking us like he's asking all his readers, how will you respond to him? Will you trust him? Will you trust him as one who understands you? Will you trust him as one who cares about you? Will you trust him as one who, who truly wants good for you? Will you trust him? And will you trust him as one who is capable, who has the power, who has the power to do what the Father sent him to do in our place? Will you trust him? Like again, main point. So I want to say that loudly. I think that's the main point in these early chapters. Um, In some ways, you see Jesus preparing for his mission, but also you see Luke preparing us for his mission by laying out his qualifications for us. But secondly, I want to highlight a couple of other applications of this story about Jesus at age 12. Uh, Maybe lesser applications, but I want to highlight these. First, Jesus learned the scriptures, and he sought to understand them. He even sought out teachers. Now think about that. The son of God, the chosen one, he sat down with teachers and needed to learn, wanted to learn, was excited to learn, asked them questions, gave answers. And and I think sometimes at that stage when you're giving answers, you're giving answers so that you can hear the feedback too, so you can continue to learn. He needed to learn and he wanted to learn. Think how crazy it is that we sometimes think we've arrived that we've got God's Word figured out or we have God figured out. That we sometimes stand so firmly, sometimes even arrogantly on things as if there are no questions left. Think how crazy that is. Uh, I went to a, to a Bible college. Actually, Dan went there and left. I mean, he went to the same Bible college, realized how crazy it was, and left after about a week. Uh, I stayed for four years. Um, very, very conservative... Bible College. Um, and again, I think, I think one of the mistakes they made, there were a lot of good things I gained there, but I think one of the mistakes they made, they almost presented everything as if there were clear and easy answers to everything. Everything was black and white. I remember when I left there and went to seminary, and suddenly I had professors challenging that, uh, raising questions from Scripture that I hadn't considered that I thought I had figured out. And what I remember is I wanted to run back there I didn't enjoy finding out that I didn't have all the answers. It was disconcerting to realize that some things that I thought were absolutely sure and settled weren't settled. I still needed to learn. I still needed to understand. I still needed teachers. I still needed to ask questions. Um, It's crazy to think I didn't. But there's something safe about thinking we have it all figured out. And sometimes we just don't want any more questions. We don't want any more teaching. I just want to hold on to what I have. You know, sometimes as kids, there are certain things you're taught and learning. You did as you should. You came to conclusions about it. You held on to that truth in some way. And sometimes we never challenge them. We never look deeper. We never think about it. We just hold on. We go the rest of our life holding on to that and trusting it and not questioning anything. Because it just, it's done. I don't want to mess with that anymore. And then we even sometimes get in fights with others and arrogantly stand on it and leave churches over it and things because it's it's the truth. I'm not saying that there aren't sometimes truths that we should stand on strongly and not move and not bend. Man, it's crazy to think we have it all figured out. We need teachers. We need to continue to learn. We need to continue to study God's Word. The Son of God did. He models that for us. Uh, I've said before that one of the things that I often say in premarital counseling to couples is that I wish I could tattoo the word curiosity across their foreheads, both of them. And the reason I say that is because I say every interaction, I wish when you saw the other you would remember. I don't fully have you figured out. I don't fully know you and understand you. There is so much more to learn. Because when you get to the point that you think you have the other completely figured out or you have them figured out just enough, your relationship kind of stops growing and becomes stagnant. And we're tempted to do that, right? I learned just enough about my spouse that I kind of know what upsets her, what she likes, what what I can get away with, what I can't get away with. Uh, I know what means a lot to her. I know what could be harmful to her. I know her. I figure that out pretty quickly, and I probably know it better than most. But to think that I should just stop there, that's enough. We can live a pretty good life with what I know. Have a pretty good relationship. But it will grow stale and stagnant. It will not continue to grow if that's it, if I stop there. That's true of every relationship, especially true of our relationship with God. We always have more to learn. And I think in this place we have some remarkable teachers. I really do. I think it's one of the gifts that we have here at ECC. Uh, I said this first service. I'll say it now and embarrass Dan. But I said, you know, Dan and Bob... When it comes to knowing Scripture and knowing theology, uh, I've been to seminary twice. I think they could go toe-to-toe with any professor that I had through seminary in their knowledge of Scripture and their knowledge of theology. Uh, I think we are blessed to have men who who know God's Word, who have studied theology so well, and are there to to help us understand and to answer questions and to, to listen to our answers and have feedback to them. I think it's a blessing. But I think what's also a blessing in this place is that we have a lot of remarkable Bible teachers in this place, not just people on staff. We have remarkable Bible teachers in the place that I learn from every time I sit in a class with them or in a Bible study with them. People who have studied God's word well. People who have spent a lifetime trying to understand and asking good questions of others. People who have applied God's word to their life and have grown in wisdom. Um, remarkable gift we have here. Please take advantage of it. Seek it out. Look for teachers in your life. Uh, but also, all of us, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit as our teacher. We know Christ. Boy, don't don't waste that. Spend time personally in God's Word. Allow the Spirit to teach you through His Word. Don't miss out on that blessing. The second thing I would say, from Jesus' example, even at 12 was that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, humbled himself and submitted to others. Uh, he, he was obedient to his heavenly father. He was obedient to his earthly parents. He was one who chose to submit himself to others and let others lead. Didn't always just have his own way. He let others lead. Even those who didn't know sometimes as well as him, he let them lead. Uh, I think that we live in a culture today that sometimes almost glorifies rebellion. I know glorifies independence. It is part, I think, of American culture. You know, we, we glorify that. And I'm not saying that there is never a place to uh, say, no, something is wrong and we must turn against it. Uh, there, aren't, there are clearly times that you'd say, that was, you're calling me to do something wrong and I simply can't do it. All of us must do that, but, but at times we almost glorify it. now so, yeah, I think it's okay that sometimes we joke about our past and stupid choices we made and rebellious things we've done or that we laugh at sometimes the things our kids have done. But I think we walk into a dangerous place when we start treating rebellion as if somehow that is a sign always of courage and strength. That is absolutely not always true. In fact, most of the time that is not true. Most of the time when I was rebellious, I was rebellious out of fear of my peers. I was rebellious just out of selfish independence. I wasn't rebellious because there was a greater authority that I was trying to honor. I was rebellious because I wanted my own way, and I liked getting my own way. I I worked with teenagers for years, and I think sometimes that's one of the struggles they face. The kids who are honestly... pretty good, who submit to the authority of adults in their life, who try to be obedient, are sometimes treated as if somehow that's weak or fearful, Uh, that they're, especially by peers, they get that sometimes. But it's sad that sometimes they hear that message almost from adults. I think it takes real courage to be one who can submit to others. I think it takes real strength. We see it in Christ. Now, I want to be careful and say, thoughtless compliance Thoughtless submission to others, I think, can be dangerous. I think it can be dangerous where we just go along with anything anyone says because they claim to be an authority in my life, or they have they want to have influence in my life. I think that can be dangerous, and we can probably come up with lots of stories of the dangers of that. Where we just start submitting to the wrong people for the wrong things. Jesus did not submit thoughtlessly. He made a choice, a well-thought-out choice, based on the word of God, based on his knowledge of God. The second Peter says, "Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men. For the Lord's sake. There is the highest authority, and we always need to consider that as we're deciding how we will move. But what's interesting with Jesus is he doesn't somehow throw out those lesser authorities because he's submitting to God the Father. Even, even when he following God the Father means I must go another way than you're calling me, he is still always looking for the way to honor and respect, treat them with dignity, follow where he can. We a lot of times use it as an excuse, right, to just turn our back on anybody else. Jesus was in right relationship with man and with God. And you see that lived out even the way he submitted to authority. Luke ends this story as he began it by saying that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I think if we want to grow in wisdom and we want to grow in favor with God and man, he's given us a great model of some of the things that will be required to do that. We need to be people who seek out truth. We need to be people who study God's word and understand what our creator has to say about us and about the world around us and about himself. We need to study God's word, listen to teachers, question those things, keep searching and keep growing in our knowledge and understanding of him. But secondly, we need to grow in humility. We need to always be growing to be people that say, it's not always about getting my own way. I need to be someone who submits myself to others, who lets others sometimes take the lead, who lets others challenge me and, and, and sometimes go ahead of me. I need to be someone who learns how to follow because if you're going to be in right relationship with God and with man, those two things are necessary. Let's pray. Father, they're, they're just not words that can express our gratitude. Uh, for what you have done for us. It's just beyond imagination that you would send your one and only son to live a life that required such sacrifice and to die a death on a cross for us. Father, it is hard to imagine uh, a love that runs so deep and is so great, and we are thankful to you for it. Father, I, I pray that you would help us uh, to be people who, who give our trust to Jesus Christ because he is the only one worthy of that trust. I pray, Father, you would, you would help us to be wise enough and courageous enough to follow. I pray, Father, that you would help us in those times when there are competing authorities in our life, competing influences, to choose wisely, choose wisely what it means to follow you while living in this world. Thank you, Father, we don't do that alone. Not only are we saved by your grace, but you sustain us by your grace. In your blessed name, amen.